Broadcasting from Moscow, Idaho. This is Campus Church Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 63, The Church Regrouping Holiness. That's the all saved freaking freak brand. Freak band bringing us in with the sower. This is Keith Darrell, and this is the Campus Church Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. And we are cooking along. We are in Moscow, Idaho, which is a good place to be. There's plenty of fellowship to be had. Had a really good weekend in church worshiping, and then a really wonderful hymn sing on Sunday night where uh, there had to be. Uh, 7,500 people maybe gathered in somebody's home. We were singing hymns and eating some food and all that sort of stuff. So it was good times. And uh, if you're not doing that where you are, uh, start picking out some saints and try to use Fridays or uh, Saturday and Sunday as times to worship, either Saturday night prepping for Sunday worship or uh, meeting again in the evening uh, to worship and singing hang, hymns and psalms and praying and everything else. And so what we hope to do in this episode of the Campus Preacher is um, look at, I got I received a question regarding dispensationalism. Apparently in one of the early episodes, I do remember mentioning dispensationalism, but I was uh, received a question regarding uh, my use of Ephesians 3 and how I understand it to be anti-dispensational. And then the other thing I want to discuss in this episode is uh, kind of re- recovering kind of or what direction would we take the church if I had some sort of leadership uh, responsibility and we were trying to uh, regroup in a culture that is uh, quite literally burning. Um, I guess maybe the culture buildings are burning, but uh, you know what I'm saying. So not literally. I'm not a I'm not using it that way. Uh, but before we get into that, we do have the... Uh, First annual Fight, Laugh, Feast conference in Nashville, Tennessee, October the 1st through the 3rd. And I believe it's $200. And, you know, I think you have to register by like July 16th, maybe even sooner. So run over to the Fight, Laugh, Feast uh, website and the CrossPolitik website and uh, check that out. But if you do become a member prior to September the 1st, which seems to be after the date. But if you become a member of the Fight, Life Feast Network after or before September the 1st, you'll get $100 off of registration. And I've mentioned it each week, but we have a phenomenal lineup, and I think it's going to be really good. And there's even uh, David French, I believe, is going to be there. And he's one of those guys that is like a trigger for me when I read his stuff. It's always a trigger. So hopefully I can meet him in person and discover that he's a wonderful man and it will change my attitude towards him. I'm sure he is a wonderful man. I've heard nothing but good things of people who uh, have met him. But my disposition is such that whenever I think someone's trying to be uh, the third way and they're way too thoughtful about being the third way, like it's it's kind of their angle, like, like everything's really, I'm a conservative, but everything I do is take a, a swipe at the conservatives. That's kind of a trigger of mine. I feel like uh, he embodies that. So anyway, that's, uh, so if you can do that by September the 1st, and if you punch in campus preacher or campus pastor, um, you will help out our little ministry that we have going on here. And what else do we have going on? Um, our Fight, Laugh, Feast app which hopefully, apparently I've messed it up, and there's some problems getting my episodes off of the Fight, Laugh, Feast app, but 
that app is kind of a, a great means to keep in touch with everything that we have going on. There's, I don't know, five or six shows on the network, and you can get them all bundled up in that one place. And even as we, you see all sorts of madness taking place in the culture, yeah, who knows whether Google and these other outlets will allow our podcast to survive and thrive. And so if you can go over and download the um, app, that will help us out, uh, knowing that uh, we can always have contact with you. Um, and so, like I said, the two things I want to discuss today is one, I want to brush on dispensationalism and Ephesians uh, chapter three. I think I'm going to look at the holiness of God. Now, when it comes to dispensationalism, I, I, I don't expect to button this up. If you're a dispensationalist, I don't expect to totally persuade you in this episode. Um, but what I basically uh, want to look at, there, there's two things, and, and the, the main debate between a more covenantal view and dispensationalism is the relationship of the church and Israel. Now, I'll just assert it here of where I'm coming from. And so God has made promises to Abraham um, that finds its place in Israel. And then when John the Baptist comes preaching on the scene, he is the messenger prophesied about in Malachi. And then Jesus arrives on the scene. And Jesus, uh, I'm just going to assert, is the true Israelite. He's not only Israel's Messiah. He is the true Israelite. And that's why in places like in Matthew chapter uh, two, I believe it is, it says, out of Israel I called my son. And if you go back to the Hosea verse that that's quoting, it's very clearly referring to national Israel. And yet there in Matthew, it's applying those words to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the true Israelite. And since Jesus is the true Israelite and his life was faithful to the end, and through his death, burial, and resurrection, he's uh, kind of the restoration of Israel in him, um, he, that is that is kind of a central component. And so it's not that Jesus dying and being cut off uh, caused a new dispensation where uh, he'll he'll kind of button up where he really intended to rule and reign um, on a literal throne in Jerusalem. Um, we believe that he is ruling and reigning right now right now at the hand of God the Father, at the right hand of God the Father. So that's kind of kind of where the debate lies. And there are two things going on here in Ephesians uh, that I think, uh, kind of point us in that direction, and I'll, I'll try to contrast it a little bit with the dispensationalists. The first thing it says here is in Ephesians 2, uh, 11. And so keep in mind, in, in chapter 1 is kind of a, a big overview that Christ is holding all things together. And I do believe that the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, we have a tendency to apply this universally, but he says, and you were dead uh, in sins and transgressions in which you once walked following. Now, I think the you there in Ephesians chapter 2 is actually referring to the Gentiles. Okay, and you pick up that idea a little bit here. Therefore, remember that at one one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And and even one of the important things here is a lot of this is referencing back to Daniel, um, it, it, the, the without hands and stuff like that. That that is all kind of Daniel language. And in Colossians chapter two, it picks up on uh, something very similar in these ideas. But what is called the circumcision, uh, which is in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, or in the Messiah, Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, what have Gentiles been brought near to? They've been brought near to the covenants of promise, uh, the hope in the world, and the commonwealth of Israel. Um, and we were separated from you know the Messiah. And now uh, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his 
uh, flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, uh, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And then if you jump down to uh, chapter 3 of Ephesians, he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, how the mystery, and this is going to be the place that the dispensational wants to camp out on, is that this idea of mystery is something that was never there in the Old Testament, and that is a kind of a brand new revelation, uh, and, and it was simply not there. But he goes on to say, It was made known to me uh, by revelation, as have I have written briefly, when you read this, uh, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations that has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, uh, Though I am the least of all the saints, this, ga- this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God uh, who created all things, so that, the manifold, uh, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Uh, this was according to the uh, um, eternal purposes of God. So, so w- what's my basic take of uh, apparently in an earlier episode I, I made uh, that this is against dispensationalism. And I would say this. So the, the dispensationalist wants to camp out on the idea that mystery is this introduction of a brand new concept of an idea. Um, but what I would want to argue is that this mystery, including uh, the circumcision not done with or done with hands, and then also in uh, Colossians chapter 2 language, not done with hands, a, a circumcision not done with hands, is that you have a contrast between that which is of Israel and then the coming of the kingdom in Daniel chapter 2 and like verses. So in Daniel chapter 2, uh, he reveals the mystery to King Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember Daniel chapter 2, there's nobody who can reveal Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but Daniel is able to reveal those mysteries. And that's where I believe Paul and other places in the New Testament is picking up the concept of mystery. Um, And so Daniel was able to reveal something um, that was kind of unknown to anybody else. And so uh, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus also speaks of the mysteries of the kingdom. Now for some dispensationalists, this place here when Jesus introduces the mysteries of the kingdom is kind of introducing the new church era and his age. But what I would want to argue is that Jesus is the greater Daniel. And so the mysteries that he's revealing about the kingdom, and if you go back to Daniel chapter 2, the the, the kingdom of God in Daniel chapter 2 is a is a stone uh, that comes rolling in and kind of shatters everything, then it kind of actually becomes bigger and greater. And so I think the mysteries that Jesus is revealing in Matthew and in those the kingdom of God is like is the nature of how that kingdom is being fulfilled. Now what we have here in Ephesians chapter 3, I think you have two things. In the Old Testament, it was revealed that Gentiles were going to be engrafted in in various texts in Isaiah and in the Psalms that the uh, Gentile nations were going to come in. But the mystery uh, that is had here in Ephesians chapter 6 or in uh, Ephesians chapter 3 and in verse th- 6, I believe, is that the mystery is this. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in the Messiah, or in Christ Jesus, through the gospel. And so, if you remember, like, Acts chapter 15, how are Gentiles brought in? And even tomorrow I'm going to be doing a podcast on uh, Galatians. And there in uh, Galatia, even Peter is 
you know, kind of encouraging people to be circumcised. And a party comes from James, they need to be circumcised. So I think what the mystery is here isn't that the church is completely separate and distinct from Israel. Jesus is the true Israelite. We're being engrafted into him. We, now Paul even says like in Ephesians chapter 3, that we are the true Israelites who worship God in spirit and truth. Uh, now the, what the mystery is, is the idea that I as a Gentile do not have to take on the national badges that are Israel's. I don't have to get circumcised. I don't have to keep kosher. I don't have to do all these things that even Jews in the first century who believed that Jesus was the Messiah was still telling Gentiles that they had to do. And so the mystery, I believe, that Paul is laying down here is that uh, in verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's not through Torah keeping. It's not through circumcision. It's not through uh, food laws and that sort of stuff. It is through the Messiah. That's the emphasis, I believe, that's taking place on what that mystery is. So um, when I say that I believe that Ephesians 3, uh, I think if you read Ephesians 2, builds into Ephesians 3, uh, that Gentiles are now co-heirs with Israel, and that has all been done through the work of Messiah, not through any works of law. And so in the Old Testament, there are places where, uh, you know, Gentiles would have been keeping kosher, um, but that's not the case. Why is that? And I believe that's the mystery that's been revealed in the gospel. So I would still maintain that Jesus is the true Israelite, the church is Israel, um, contra dispensationalism, and that's how I'd understand what's going on with the mystery here in Ephesians chapter 3. So hopefully that provides a little bit of clarity. There are tons of issues intertwined with that. I don't want to short shift uh, any dispensationalists, but I only have so much, I guess, in a sense, only so much time. I don't want to, you guys don't want to talk on dispensationalism for hours, I don't think. Um, and so the next issue that we I'd like to discuss is if I was in some way, shape, or form in charge of the church and I was, you know, trying to lead a charge of how we change, I think, first of all, last week, count the costs. I think BLM people, communists, uh, they're counting the costs. And one of the things that we're completely missing in Western culture, since we're not a religious people, generally, we've become secular and becoming egalitarian, we kind of flatten the world. And even evangelicals flatten the world when we say all sin is the same. Well, no, not all sin is the same. So when Jesus says every sin and blasphemy are forgiven, except for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was the same as the others, it would be forgiven. And if all other sins were the same as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, uh, they would not be forgiven. And then also Jesus says, the one who hands me over is guilty of a greater sin. And so there are, and there are other verses that we could look at, but the, the basic gist is uh, many evangelicals have flattened the world. And what I think we need to rediscover in many ways, the holiness of God. And years ago, I read R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God. And I think it's fantastic. It's a great place to start. And but one of the one of the people who hit me, there was a man named P.T. Forsyth, who a hundred years ago was buying into theological liberalism. And I don't know all of his story, but someone along the way began to encourage him to study the holiness of God. And there is a, a brief little segment that I want to read to you that I think will uh, set us in the right direction because there are two things in here that take place. Um, he was a liberal theologian, and in many ways, the thing that he describes, I believe, is true of our culture today. Our culture even if it's totally perverted, loves love. Uh, hashtag love wins. Uh, you can't help who you love and follow your heart or whatever. Any, anything that we can somehow get to love, uh, we enjoy it, but then most people don't feel love. Most people are feeling used and abused and all that sort of stuff because we've confused love with selfishness and all that. But I think what the root issue is here in the church is that we are not preaching the holiness of God. And when we approach God, 
we have no concept of holiness. So I'm going to read uh, from P.T. Forsyth. He says this, There was a time when I was interested in the first degree with purely scientific criticism. Bred among academic scholarship of the classics and philosophy, I carry these habits to the Bible. And part of the reason I read that part of this is in our Reformed world, and I, I get it, I, I, I get why, uh, we, have, we can easily be academic. Uh, we become rationalistic. Uh, about our approach to the world around us. And so we read the latest books and we kind of know we're being sanctified by how many books we're reading and stuff like that. Like the proof of your sanctification is your bookshelf in many ways. And so I'm all for studying and reading and being well-learned. But at the end of the day, that's not vital godliness. That's not powerful godliness. And um, he goes on to say this, and then he goes, it also pleased God by the revelation of his holiness and grace which the great theologians taught me to find in the Bible, to bring home to me my sin in a way that submerged all the school questions and weight and urgency and poignancy. I was turned from a Christian to a believer, from a lover of love to an object of grace. And so whereas I first thought that what the churches needed was enlightened instruction and liberal theology, I came to be sure that what they needed was evangelization and something more than the conventional sense of the word. And that line, when he says here, when I was turned from a Christian to a believer, so so here he was identified as a Christian. Yes, I'm a Christian and blah, 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 but he wasn't really a believer. And he says, for a, uh, from a lover of love, who's turned from a lover of love to an object of grace. And he grasped that in studying the holiness of God. And ever since I was a young Christian, uh, this isn't a, I guess it sounds arrogant, it sounds like a pat on my back, and it's not that. Um, John, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the, the cherubim cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with the glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook. That vision of God has, in many ways, just kept me through my Christian faith because it's something glorious. It's so different than everything else going in the world. It's not a flattening of the world. And the reality is when you have holiness, one of the things we want to often prevent in the gospel, and there is a sense these things are taken away, is that when you when you have holiness, you, you automatically have the other. Because the very nature of, of holiness is something that's separate and distinct. And one of the things our culture is trying to do and flatten everything is that the philosophically it's called monism. It wants everything to be one. But when holiness comes into the picture, you have distinction, you have separation. And so the reality of being a holy people is we're all going to be distinct and separate from the world. And the reality of it is the reason we are is because we see the holiness of God and who he is and what he's done. And he is holy other uh, by holy W H O L L Y I believe holy other in that sense. Um, being a holy, H-O-L-Y, um, because he's holy. And so him being holy other and separate and distinct and high and lifted up from us is what we need to recover. And I do think, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, that's what many people are going after in these riots and in these protests. It's it's kind of giving them something other. It's bigger than themselves. It's, it's separate from themselves. It's not something they experience every day. And when we flatten the gospel— um, we, and we flatten the world, we end up losing the holiness of God. And in our attempts to reach the world, we try to downplay holiness. Because even if you mention the holiness of God, suddenly people are like, oh, it was a hellfire and brimstone. Well, hell's the result because his holiness is a consuming fire. Um, but it's not this irrational hellfire and brimstone God flying off the handle. It's rather a being that is uh, worthy of worship and honor and glory. And you become like a cherubim and you fall down. And the beauty of the gospel is... 
Isaiah ends up saying, woe is me, I'm unclean, a man of unclean lips, I'm a people of unclean lips, and one of the cherubim comes from the altar and cleanses his lips. Just like P.T. Forsyth experienced here, you become an object of grace. When you see the holiness of God and you're broken down before him, you become an object of grace. And that's a message you can preach to whites, you can preach to blacks, you can preach to whatever it is, whatever your cultural context is, and it's something that I, I think ultimately if you're preaching it, you're making it clear the holiness of God in a way that lifts him up, not not makes you holy, although you want to be holy, um, but in a way that lifts him up, it will draw people to him. And even Jesus himself says, if I am lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. I think that's a double play on one, obviously being crucified, uh, but then secondly, also being exalted and honored in our preaching. And so I, if, 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 I, if it was up to me, uh, I, I would... I, I would have the church spend the next six weeks, eight weeks, preaching the holiness of God. And once that's done, you no longer uh, have a lot of the contentions, divisions in the church, because people begin to humble themselves. I'm kind of tied into this idea is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, and it's so funny because it's so different than the way many people want to approach the church and how we want to do church. But in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the Apostle Paul is uh, addressing spiritual gifts, and he ends up saying that uh, he— you know, if, if your options are tongues or prophecy, he says that he wishes uh, that they could prophesy. And the reason he desires uh, for prophecy is this. If, therefore, the whole congregation comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So what sort of church service do you want? Do you? I would much rather be in a church service where that is a reality, opposed to us just all, you know, rocking it out, drinking Cokes, and just acting like everything is normal. Um, because when you're entering into the presence of God, and even in our church services, when we say, lift up your hearts, we lift up the Lord, we are entering the presence of God, and there it's holy, but going back to the Isaiah thing, God cleanses us. We go into his presence. We confess our sins. He cleanses us. And that's where we need to live. And so anyway, if I was in charge of reforming the church or uh, if I could get a message out to people, it would be the holiness of God. We need to spend a few weeks uh, meditating upon that. And then a fruit of that, next week we're going to look at the fear of the Lord. So if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me, Keith, at Campus Preacher. Dot com campusreacher.com is my website and campus evangel on the twitter or keith daryl do with it what you can because the good god in heaven needs us so we're in the land some seed fell by the wayside some of it fell among thorns Some of it fell upon stony ground